Hello and welcome to the Life Together podcast, where we share in meaningful conversation about living for Christ and loving one another. Thanks for joining today, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode. Uh, Joining me today is Keith Stonehart, and Keith uh, has had a big impact on my faith. I met Keith at Alabama camp probably five or six years ago when I was a camp friend, and he was a counselor there, and I'm very thankful for the ways that you've influenced my faith over the years, even though it's been just in spurts here and there, mm-hmm. but um, it's meant a lot to me, and so I'm really glad that uh, I've gotten to share that with everybody this weekend, um, and really glad that you're here and free to do uh, this this episode. So welcome, and then maybe just tell us a little bit about uh, the work you're invested in right now and your family and just how life is going for the Stonehearts. Well, first of all, thank you so much for that gracious introduction. That's probably more than I deserve, so thank you uh, for that. Um, yeah, so uh, we've been at the Fultondale Congregation now, uh, just north of Birmingham, you know, about five miles, uh, for 10 years. Um, and uh, it's been the best thing that we ever did. I, I was not looking to become a preacher when I became one, uh, the Fulton Hill congregation offered me the opportunity after meeting several other members of Fulton Hill at Alabama camp in 2010, uh, our first year there, uh, when my daughter Kaya was, I think in the fifth grade. And so, um, you know, we started going and, uh, did not preach full time anywhere. I'd spoken a handful of times, but nothing substantial. And I uh, had to fill in for Rhodes Davis that night, uh, who had gotten a, a uh, severe migraine uh, from sunburn, and um, and did and and um, got the invitation from a couple members of Fultonell to come speak, and uh, and I did. And after a couple times of that, they offered me the the opportunity in 2012, and and um, did not see it coming. You know, uh, honestly, it was a uh, um, something that was never on my radar. And so we've been there 10 years now, and uh, the work has. It's been, I think it's been a two-way street. It's been, it's been as good for us as it has been for them, I hope. It seems like. I mean, the, the group has grown. Uh, I'm, I'm very passionate about evangelism. There, there's, a, there's an aspect of, of my story that involves um, what I would call, you know, real evangelism where um, they, I, I wasn't just taught, brought into the water, and then left. I mean, I was taught, brought to the water, and then discipled. I mean, uh, Brownlee Reeves, you know, Sarah Reeves' granddad, uh, Sarah and Will Reeves, uh, their granddad um, taught Kelly and I the gospel, my wife Kelly. And um, and he studied with us every Monday night for four years after my baptism to make sure that we understood, you know, doctrine and mm-hmm. we understood, you know, wisdom and, and the, the different things that we were so lacking because I didn't know anything. And so raising my daughter, Kaya, who's now 24 and married and has just made me a grandpa, you know, it's awesome. And I don't feel like a grandpa. I don't know very many grandpas that have mohawks, but here I am. <laughs> um, and, um, and my son, Cole, who's here with me this weekend, he's 16, you know, I mean, raising them in that environment uh, was something I didn't get and something I, I always wanted for them. And, and, and of course, I mean, I was going to raise them within the church anyway, because Kelly and I had become Christians when Kai was two and Cole was born, you know, um, seven years later. And so there was, you know, there's a, we were going to do that anyway. We were going to raise them the way that the Bible uh, tells us. I mean, because we were learning along as well, but um, 
being there at Fultondale and and being a part of the work and being able to bring Coles to Cole to events like this and Alabama camp and 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 he's gone to a couple other camps. He went to North Carolina camp this year and. You know, it's been it's been great in seeing how it's helped shape and mold my children in ways that I probably couldn't, you know, because there are certain things I just can't relate to, uh, other things I can't relate to, you know. But um, I don't know what it's like to have so many good godly friends I didn't have that growing up, you know. And yeah. so being able to trust them with a group of people that I that I know are safe has been great. And so the the last ten years have, have absolutely been the the best ten years of my life. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. And and I've visited Fultondale like a couple times, mm-hmm. you know, and I love that church, love the people there. Um, really good group and yeah. thankful for the work that you and your, your family are doing down there. Um, but last night, uh, you, you kicked things off for us at the teen weekend. And, uh, I guess, I guess this is good to share. You, you walked up there and your notes weren't <laughs> working. So you yeah. just went off the cuff, yep. right? So I, you know, of course I came fully prepared. I, I, I wrote a lesson. I had five points that I wanted to make, you know, in a, in a 15 minute span about friendships, right? And about how, how important it is to, to have these godly friendships and what it means, uh, to, to me to see my kids having those. And I get up there, and my iPad won't unlock. I keep putting in the code, and I, I'm, 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 I guess I'm going so fast, I'm missing a number every time. And after the third time, you know, it just locks. And so oh. I was like, okay, well, I've got my phone as a backup. And so I pull out the phone, I open my OneNote app, and because uh, I never synced it when I was connected to Wi-Fi, because my iPad isn't isn't wireless, yeah. right? It's not uh, cell service. Um it just it just showed a blank note there, <laughs> so I was like, okay, Plan C, <laughs> which was I'm going to read my I know my passage I know my John 15 passage I'm going to read that passage and then we'll just see what happens. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, I ended up just talking about finding your people. You know, that's that that passage where where Jesus says, I no longer call you my servants, but I call you my friends. Yeah, um, those were his people. You know, what I mean, and and so when you really when you really break that idea down of finding your people, Jesus found his people. Right. I mean, we could say, you know, he chose them or we know they were chosen. Uh, great show, by the way. But um, but but more than that, I mean, especially Peter, James and John, those were his people. He had a, he had a group of people and he shows us how important to have that group is. And so I just talked about last night about finding your people and what it meant to me to find mine, you know, and how um, the people that I found in, in the church, the Christians that I that I came in contact with had everything to do with my success or failure. Yeah. They had everything to do with my shaping me to, to if, if, if I'm, if I'm helpful at all in the kingdom now, it's, it's because I had people involved with me in that, that they weren't going to let me, um, they just weren't going to let me fall through the cracks. Yeah. And so it, I, I, you know, once I started talking and I sort of tapped into that place, it, it kind of just came out as naturally as it as yeah. it could, but um, but there was about two minutes there where there was complete fear, <laughs> and like I was like, oh no, what am I gonna do? And uh, but you know, God yeah. saved me like He always does, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> well, it was really powerful, and and um, I know, I mean, I know me and Lawrence have felt moments like that, but it was it was really. Uh, powerful what you shared in in what you shared was you you didn't always have that you didn't always no, have those people and those relationships you didn't grow up in the church and so um let's let's kind of peel back the curtain on that a little bit okay. like share share your story where is all that coming from 
how did you end up finding your people and how did God work in your life to to bring you where you are today? So I'll try to give you the shortest version possible, you know, because I've got 50 years of, <laughs> of, of life now. Uh, and so, and, and I told you this before, that no matter how embarrassing some of the details are, um, the truth is, is that none of my story is about me, right? It's all about yeah. him. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we sing Amazing Grace and the line that says, "'Twas grace that saved a wretch like me." I mean, I, yeah. I, I live that every single day in the forefront of my mind because it was. It was grace that saved a wretch. And I was. I mean, I, I truly believe, and, and, and probably because I still sin, I, I, I still consider myself a wretch, yeah. you know, in progress. And um, But there are a few absolute truths in life, and I think that um, the first thing is people need to know that God loves you. Mm-hmm. That is an absolute truth. And that he wants you. And um, he's made being with him and being friends with him possible. And um, I think the thing that, you know, those, those all sound really good to everybody. You know, God loves you. God wants you. And he made being with him possible. But the fourth thing that I think people need to know that's an absolute truth also is that Satan will do everything he can to keep you from believing the first three are true. Mm. Um, and I'll tell you another truth about Satan is he won't wait for you. Um, he won't wait for you to grow up to come after you. He'll come after you young. Um, first time I drank alcohol, I was nine, right? I was nine years old. Um, and I think, you know, probably like a lot of nine years old, nine year olds, it was, it was curiosity. You know, I'd see my dad drink and I thought, okay, well, what's that? What's that about? What's that like? You know? And, um, but more than that, the nine year old me was looking for a way to not feel the way that I did. And that's kind of a heavy thought for a nine-year-old. Um, but for the four years previous to that, I had been sexually molested by an older family member, um, a cousin. And not a cousin by blood, but a cousin by marriage into the family. And um, and obviously, when I think back on it now, he, you know, he was older than me. I mean, he was, I think he was 14 or 15 at the time. And you know, of course, and when you're young, you want to hang out with the older kids, you know, um, and I'm five years old. So, yeah, the older kids are a draw, right? But what I think about now that I hadn't considered even then is, that, you know, how he knew to do that, that it had probably been done to him too, right? And it was he was just perpetuating um, a cycle. And, you know, at five, you don't know that that's not normal. You don't understand. You're just doing what the older kids say that we're doing, you know, and hey, this is a secret. And of course, you want to be in on the secret when you're five, you know, you want to be in that, in that no. And so, you know, I didn't know that I'd been lied to. I didn't, I didn't know that I was being hurt. I just, you know, you're, you're just going with, with what it is. And so, you know, by the time I was nine, I knew, right? I, at five, I didn't know, but by the time I, I was nine, I knew that, because this went on for a couple of years. Uh, when he lived so close to us and, um, you know, as much shame and confusion and frustration that a nine-year-old could have, I had it. And, um, so my nine-year-old mind was looking for an escape. And so then by the time I was 14, I graduated to, to, you know, to marijuana and LSD. And, uh, by the time I was 16, I graduated to cocaine. I got introduced to cocaine, uh, at a at a, uh, a party that I should not have been at. Uh, I was 16 years old and I was partying with people that were in their 20s. Because I had, uh, in the meantime, I had um, I had become part of a rock band in high school. Um, one thing I've I've always had a natural 
gift for, and I, and, and, and I don't think this is bragging to say, but I, I recognize, but I, I always had an inclination for music. Um, I started playing the drums right around that nine-year-old age. It felt good to hit something, you know. And so uh, I started playing the drums, and it, it totally by ear, and MTV, right? <laughs> MTV back then used to play music videos. <laughs> it doesn't that anymore. But, uh, and I, and I, I would watch these drummers, and I was just mesmerized. And so I started playing the drums and uh, convinced my, my, my family to get me a drum set for Christmas. And then by the time I was 13, I'd, I'd moved from drums to guitar, and my brother had taught me a few chords, and I, I taught myself to play guitar. And, you know, by the end of that summer, I could play just about any song on the radio because that's all I would do. I'd sit and play with the radio all day. And, um, you know, I'd begun to sing as just sort of a natural uh, thing, too, was was uh, singing, playing guitar. And, and so music came very easy. So I was in a rock band of, of guys who had all graduated high school. And I was, you know, 14, you know, when I joined this band. It's so about the time I'm 16. We're playing in bars all over Atlanta, you know, uh, that I should not be in. You know, I, I, shouldn't have, I shouldn't have been allowed in the building because it wasn't like a – uh, an all ages venue that served alcohol. It was a bar, right? It was, it was, it was, it was people went there to drink, you know, and I'm in these bars and I'm, I'm playing with grown men, you know, in a band and, you know, and all the things that go with that. And so, um, and I had an appetite for destruction for sure. I, I was, you know, you know, 16 years old and, and angry, you know, cause I still was struggling with, all the previous right because especially by the time you're 16 and it's the 1980s you know it's you know in um you know 1989 i was 16 and and um you know uh wrestling with what had happened to me because you know it you know at some point you recognize that what happened to you there was a homosexual aspect to that right that i didn't ask for but it happened, and so you're you're then struggling with these questions of your own sexuality. And am I am I gay? I don't feel gay, but I better make sure. And and so I'm I'm at 16 years old. I'm as promiscuous as they come. I'm sleeping with every girl that will let me. Um, trying to convince myself right that that I'm okay. And you know, of course, that that cycle of hurt people hurt people. So, I mean, I I think I think one of the, one of my biggest regrets in life is that period in my life because I, how many how many people did I hurt in that process well, the trail of destruction that I left because I needed to prove something in myself and and these people were a means to an end and I wasn't treating them like people nor was I treating the the gift of sex in the god-given way that he had given us and I didn't know that right I didn't grow up religious um so you know, the band, I graduate high school, our band hits the road, I'm on the road 25 days a month most of the time, you know, and, um, you know, when I'm 23, I meet this girl, and um, she's unlike any girl that I've met, because there was a morality about her that was really attractive to me, I'd never, uh, listen, all the girls that I was spending time with were, you know, uh, just as hurt and broken as I was, and so we were just contributing to our own cycle of destruction. And um, when I met Kelly, she was different. She she would tell me no. 
And that was really attractive to me because I'd never met a girl with limits. And I wanted to know what that was about. Where does this come from? What does this know that you keep telling me? What is, you know, what are you talking about? You know, now, I mean, to be fair, I mean, she wasn't really behaving either. We, neither one of us were Christians. I, I was an atheist for the most part, probably more out of convenience. But uh, she had grown up in the church, but she never had become a Christian. And she had left home. And, you know, so she's in her early 20s and she's bartending. You know, and, I, and I'm playing in the bar that she's in. And so, you know, we, we meet organically, but she still had this, you could tell there was still something inside of her that had been planted there at a young age where she, um, she really uh, had her life together. And that was super attractive to me. And I wanted to know all about that. And, uh, and so we began dating. And then not long after, we, we got married. And in that short two-year period, I... I stopped doing drugs as much. You know, the cocaine sort of took a back seat because I had this new addiction, and it was her, you know. And, um, of course, I'm still in my band. We're still playing. We're not touring 25 days a month anymore. Now we're just doing, like, you know, long weekends, and then I'm working, you know, framing houses during the, the week when I'm there uh, to supplement because, I mean, we, we actually made really good money in the band. You know, when you're playing 25 days a month, you make pretty good money, but that's you can't have a relationship in two or twenty five days a month. Uh, that not a relationship that's going to mean anything. You know, who wants to see their 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 significant other you know twice a month or something? You know. So um, we um, we got married and uh, found out my daughter Kaya was coming, and that was kind of an eye opening moment for me. Um, and. It was in that time that I really began to think about God. Could this be possible? Um, because I'll tell you what, when she was born, my eyes were opened to a whole different uh, reality um, that I really considered that, hey, there might be a God because this is incredible. And I also realized that I didn't love my wife. I thought I did. I thought my version of it was love, but... I really thought she was just very pretty, and I liked the way that she made me feel, but but that's not love, right? L love has nothing to do with how she makes me feel. It's everything to do with how I express that to her, right? I mean, love is, you know, love isn't love until you give it away, right? Mm -hmm. And all I was doing was taking. And when my daughter came, I realized there was nothing she could give me, right? Yeah. There was absolute outcry. There was nothing she could give me, Um to express love to me and this feeling was all about me giving for her and i thought whoa i was like this is this isn't the same you know this this isn't the same as what i have with kelly and i'm scared now um and i and i really started thinking about um my life and I, how am i going to raise this this other human being that i'm completely responsible for now uh, when I'm still a mess, you know, I still had unresolved issues with my childhood. I still had addiction issues. I had all the things that come as, as, as sideline and peripheral issues with those things. And so I started trying, man, but the addiction had me and I, I, could, I would try for a while and I would fall and I would try for a while and I would fall. And, and, and then naturally, um, Kelly and I began to have problems you know, because of it. And, um, and like 
a lot of couples in the world, and not not you know what, and I, I won't resolve, I won't reserve this strictly to the world because it happens in the church too. Um, because I've counseled a lot of couples that go through this, but you know, naturally, what happens sometimes when problems arise like that, intimacy goes away, and you know, not having God as a standard, not having good biblical friends to help push me back in the right direction or anyone to give me wise counsel. I, I did what the world does. And I started looking for someone who would, you know, and, and, and I did, I, I ended up, uh, after one of our shows going home with a woman and, and, um, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my life because I'd never been unfaithful to her before that. And then in this moment I had broken a vow you know, and I didn't know how serious that was at the time, but I knew something wasn't right. It wasn't what I wanted. I knew that. As, as soon as it was over, I was like, this isn't what I wanted. I thought it was. You know, in your mind, you convince yourself, you know, that this is what you want. And I think that's why James 5.16 is so important to me, too. Because let's just say if you and I would have been friends and I would have called you that morning and said, hey, Jared, I'm going to cheat on my wife today. You would have been like, dude, no, you're not. Right? Yeah. Because the two things happen. When I say something out loud, it's real, right? If I think it in my head but I don't tell anybody, then I can justify it all I want. But the moment I, I speak it into existence, it's out there. And now you've heard it, and I've heard it. I hear how ugly it sounds myself. And so that I think there's power in, in confessing, right? But who is I going to confess to, right? And so once it was over, I was like, you know, this isn't what I wanted. This was wrong. This was, this was wrong. And I just decided I wasn't never going to do it again and went on. Well, it surfaced. She found out, right? And I'm glad she did. Um, because two reasons. Because it was a heavy burden that I was dying keeping it from her. You know, this this inner conflict of, man, I've just, you know. And so the second reason I'm glad is because it led us to the gospel. She left. Right, she took Kaya, who was two then, and she left. And I came home, and I was gonna get high. Right, I called the drug dealer. I got me an eight ball of cocaine, and I was uh, I was going to forget, you know. And I I never said this out loud at the time, but but maybe even just die, right? And just you know what. This, this whole thing has gone too far. I just, this needs to be over, you know. And so I wasn't looking to commit suicide, but I was okay with dying at the time because, I mean, I had made a complete mess, total mess, right? And so as I'm about to use drugs, my brother-in-law, Mark Bowman, uh, Drew's dad, shows up um, at the door, and he comes in, and I'm like, what do you want, Mark? He said, I just want to talk, man. And I said, you want to talk about how bad of a person I am? He said, no. He said, I'm just here to see if I can help. And so I'm projecting all of my guilt on him like he's going to judge me, but he's not there to judge me. He's there to help me, and I keep fighting him, you know. And so he finally kind of disarms me and just says, listen, man, I just want to talk to you. I, I'm not, I'm not going to try any, anything. I just, I, I, I just want you to tell me what's going on with you. And so for the next three hours... That's what I did. I told him every ugly truth. I told him about, you know, the abuse when I was younger. I told him about, you know, the the drugs, the alcohol, the other woman, all this. I told I just told him everything. And I remember him looking at me really in 
tensely across the table. I'm a I'm a pretty big guy, you know. Back in, of course, in my twenties, I was a little more ripped than than Dad bod, but but it was it was, um, and I knew how to fight, right? And so Mark's looking at me, and I listen. I could take Mark in a fight. But man, there was there, he had determination in his eyes, and he he was looking at me like he would he wanted to take me outside in the yard and beat me for all I was worth. And in that moment, he probably could have, because I didn't have any of that determination that he had. There was there was sincerity there, and and uh, and I was a little I was a little intimidated. Not gonna lie, you know this you know five foot eight man is sitting across from me that I'm thinking you're not gonna hurt me, but he was gonna hurt me in that moment. But he wasn't. And he says, listen, he said, um, I know you don't believe in God. And he said, but you have lived your way for 28 years and you've made a total mess. I said, Mark, are you inviting me to church? He says, I am, because what have you got to lose? He said, you've done everything else your way and look at it. Your way doesn't work. You need to let somebody else drive. And I said, Mark, you know I don't believe in God. He goes, I know you don't. He said, but he believes in you, and if you will just commit to coming, I think I can convince Kelly to meet you there. And so that got my attention because I wanted nothing more than for Kelly to come home. you know. And so he convinced me to meet him there, and Kelly met me there, and we appeared to be together to everyone there. We couldn't have been further apart, but no one knew that besides us and Mark and his wife, Denise, Kelly's sister. And um, I don't remember what the lesson was on. I take that back. The Bible class was on Revelation 19. And I remember thinking to myself, what have we walked into? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because he's up there talking about the robe dipped in blood and making war and all this, you know, and I was like, whoa, what are, what are we doing? Um but no, I, I don't remember the invitation. I don't remember the songs that were sang. I don't remember anything except when it was over and how apprehensive I had been about going because I'd never set foot in a church in my life. And I remember thinking to myself, these people are going to judge me and they're going to, you know, they're going to, you know, laugh at me. They're going to, you know, whatever. And that couldn't have been further from the truth, man. It was when, when, when class was over, people were just, they wanted us to know who we were, and they they wanted to welcome us, and they wanted to tell us that they were glad to see us. And I'm listen, I'm I'm in my rock band phase where um, my hair was jet black, uh, about four inches long all over, and spiky everywhere. Right, the mohawk is tame. Right, the mohawk I have now is tame compared to what I had going on then. And I had both my ears pierced, I had my nose pierced, I've got tattoos. I mean, I, I was I'm I'm that guy sitting in this building of people that I think no one here could possibly understand me. And I couldn't have been further. I couldn't have been more wrong. That could have been further from the truth. Um, Cause they just wanted to talk and, and let me know they were glad that I was there and they didn't care where I come from. They didn't care about anything up until that moment, except that I was there. And I never felt that because even, cause you know, part of whenever I was in my rock band, part of what I was looking for was acceptance right? I didn't get a lot of acceptance from my dad. One of the things I left out about my childhood is my dad was extremely abusive between, to my mother and myself and uh, physically, mentally, verbally, all of it. And so I was 
the, the, the music aspect appealed to me very much because there was acceptance there. And so I go into this church thinking these people are going to judge me and reject me. And, and what I got was accepted. And I was like, you know, I could come back to this. I, I could come back again. And, of course, Brownlee didn't let us out of the lobby that night without a study. You know, he comes, I mean, Brownlee's a big man. And he's six foot four. And, you know, he's he's got size on him. He comes up, and he's this big voice, and he introduces himself. You know, I'm Brownlee Reeves, you know. And and um, he says, you ever study your Bible? I said, sir, I don't have a Bible. He says, I'll bring you one. How about tomorrow night? I mean, he just did not let me out of that lobby without agreeing to a study. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, it'll get Kelly back to the house tomorrow night. Maybe I can convince her to stay, you know. And so we begin studying with Brownlee. And he um, he let me ask all of my dumb, atheist, gotcha questions that I thought I had. I mean, he shot them down like, you know, like, you know, I mean, just as simple, simple as could be, just, I mean, shot holes and everything. And, you know, he did something that really caught my attention was that every question I asked, he would flip to a scripture. He would turn the Bible around and push it across the table to me. And he would say, what does that say? And he was making me read the Bible. I didn't, I didn't catch it then, but I, I know now what he was doing. You know, no one has ever, ever obeyed the gospel. that didn't read it for themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's what he's doing. He's making me read it. I never read a Bible. I didn't know anything about the Bible, you know. Um, and so he's making me read the Bible. And and after about two weeks of this, man, I, was, I couldn't really argue with him anymore. And we began to legitimately study because I saw there was merit in it. And it was getting Kelly home uh, those nights. And then we confided in him what we were dealing with and what we were going through. And, and, um, and Kelly had expressed... Um, Again, grace that I that I get emotional about that she wanted to reconcile, you know that, and he said, "Now you know you don't have to," and that's probably the thing that stuck with me the most is she didn't, she did not have to reconcile with me. But what could be more graceful than not just reconciling and forgiving me, but but keeping us married? So I think a lot about. Jesus and us, you know, that every time we commit spiritual adultery, he could put us away. He could put us away, and he'd be right to do so. But that's grace, right? He takes us back. He reconciles. He, he makes us friends again with him. And, and that's, that's always been a, uh, a grounding motivator for me because of the, the grace my wife showed me. And you know, so so then we begin this process of of learning and studying, and I essentially traded one addiction for another. You know, after a, a nine month period, and I relapsed, and I went forward. I talked a little bit about that last night. After that period, and everyone knew then what was going on with me because it had been a secret up till then. Um, then I really got to experience what church was about that 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 it wasn't a building, that it really was a people. And these people get into your life, you know, and, and not in a nosy, busybody way, but like a like a family would, like this genuine concern and care for your well being. It's not just a it's not just a friendly, hey, how are you today stuff. It's really like, hey, how are you today? You know. Um, it's a very different question when you ask it that way. And uh, I learned that that I had people and that, you know, 
stark contrast to when we walked away from the music scene, when I quit my band and she quit her bartending job, we had this group of people that we thought were our friends. Nobody called us. Hmm. Nobody said, hey, where are y'all? The phone didn't ring. It's like we had exited that lifestyle with these people that we thought we were so close to, and nobody cared. And it made me realize that those people were just there because of what I brought to them, and that's not love either, is it? Right? So I'm, I'm beginning to build these models about what love is and what grace is and what uh, redemption is and all these stories that I'm learning in the Bible that are, that are, that are true and, and um the principles are timeless and they, you know, you start seeing those things in your own life. And so you start putting yourself in the story when you read it. You're like, oh yeah, that's just like me. Oh yeah, that's just like me too. Oh yeah. And that happened just like me. You know, and you start saying, man, I'm, I'm Peter in this story. Or man, I'm David in this story. You know, uh, or, you know, sometimes it's, oh man, you know, I'm Cain in this story. I mean, there's, there's all these different, things that you start inserting yourself into because you're like when Jesus tells Peter to get behind him and calls him Satan that's me right that's me and it started clicking man and so I, I just became addicted I became addicted to studying the Bible I wanted to read it all the time and I wanted to study it all the time probably too much and, and Kelly even told me she goes hey listen you're a little obsessed with this and I was like oh it's this or cocaine you know, so and she's like, well, keep reading, you know, um, and, and, and I realized that about myself. I am an addictive personality. If I like something, I love it. And if I love it, I want it all the time. And, and what that became for me was Jesus and this obsession almost with, with getting to know him, you know, this, um, you know, cause the thing that, that Brownlee got me with finally was a question about time. You know, he, he says, Keith, what's the date today? I'll never forget it. It was November the 21st, 2001. He says, what is that? I said, it's today's date. He goes, what's it based on? I said, I don't know. He said, well, 2001 represents something. I said, years. He goes, okay, 2,000 years from what? I was like, well, I don't know. He says, well, think about it, Keith. He goes, everything before that time period was called A.D. or B.C. Sorry, B.C., he said, what's that stand for? And it was before the before common era people showed up. He says, before Christ, right? BC stands for before Christ. And everything after that we're in now is AD. He goes, you know what that stands for? I was like, no idea. He says, what's well, Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. He says, so if you put those two concepts together and we're in 2001, that's from 2001 years from something. I said, well, Jesus' birth? He said, Jesus' birth. He said, our entire system of time is based upon that event. He said, so you can deny him if you want to. He said, but every time you sign the date on a check, you acknowledge him. Hmm. So fast forward back to where I'm, I'm really addicted. I want to know. I want to know all about this man. I want to know all, all about the things that led up to him and the, and, and the things that matter now. And, and, and um, it just sent me on this deep dive that I was in for four years studying and reading everything I possibly could. And so in 2010, when I got that opportunity to, to fill in and preach for Rose Davis, I wasn't prepared, but it was kind of like last night. Um, I read Ecclesiastes 12 and I just started talking and it, and it, what had happened was I had at that point, I had, you know, um, nine years of, of Bible study, 
four years of that really addicted Bible study. But I had a whole lifetime of experience, you know, to that point. I had the years before I was a Christian and the years since culminating in this, this, um, and I don't really know what to call it, but it, it was, I just, I was, I was able to, uh, relate so much of those things with my own life. And so it just, it came out like I was just talking mm-hmm. the, that I didn't, I didn't really have to think too deeply about it because I just knew these things were true. And that doesn't, that's not a habitual practice. I still like to confirm, you know, what I'm, what I'm teaching, but, but at that time it, and it, it happened. And so got the opportunity to then to, to come and work at Fultondale and, you know, and so I've dedicated myself to the one another's that the, I, the concept I talked about last night, because that's what made the difference for me from 2001 until now. It's been my people that I found that found me and the, you know, the, the coming out of the darkness, so to speak, where, you know, Kelly and I, I mean, our marriage, I mean, when we reconciled, there was, there was a five year period that was really difficult where I'm trying to rebuild trust with her. And I'm also trying to take over as a leader, something I knew nothing about. Um, I'm, I'm trying to, to be the spiritual head of household, which I knew nothing about. I'm trying to be a good husband, which I knew nothing about. And I'm trying to be a father. And so that five year, first five year period was rough, man. And we fought. And there again, we had good people intervening, counseling, talking, um, you know, often, you know, getting me to, to, to open my eyes a little more and getting her to open her heart a little more and, and to, to notice and be vulnerable because neither one of us wanted to be vulnerable because of how we got to that place. And so I'm just saying that over the last 20, you know, two years now of being a Christian, um, those are the high points, man. It's been the people. Yeah. It's been the church. I mean, Jesus is is the anchor of it all, and that's where my I my I keep my eyes focused. But man, um, my conversion is still going on. Yeah. You know what I mean? When people say, "Give you a conversion story," I'm like, "Well, I'm still in it. I don't mm-hmm. tell you, I'm still there. You know, I'm still. Every day is still a process of 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 letting go of something, and and taking on something else. You know, I learned that about myself with addiction is that. You can't just give away one behavior and not take on another one, you know. And uh, at first, it was uh, physical things like push-ups. That's why I got into weightlifting, you know, and um, because I needed some sort of outlet for the times when when my mind would want to use. I mean that that will never go away for me. Uh, there's an I think my brain just from that being my only coping mechanism for years. Um, whenever I am confronted with stress or, or something that I don't want to face or whatever it might be, um, my fight or flight is flight, right? I, I just want to escape. Um, and I think a lot of that's probably because of the abuse from my dad. I mean, I just, you know, in my mind, I, I go back to that place and I just want to run. Well, and I've realized that being a Christian man means that I've got to fight, right? And so I can't just run. Run if you need to, but I think that that for the most part, a Christian man's job is to is to stand in the gap, you know, protect these people that I care about, and if it means I take a few shots, I take a few shots, and and I've just had to come to grips with that. But I'm just saying all that to say that that in this last twenty two years of becoming a Christian and and now to the to the to the role that I serve as a as a minister. Um, it's become very important 
to me, uh, to help people the way that I was helped, you know, to, uh, to not just study with them to the water, but to study with them beyond, you know, to help them understand, to be a, uh, a soft place for them to land because they're going to have many hard crashes, right? They're going to have, um, you know, one of the things that Satan is good at is convincing you that you're not done, mm. you know, um, one of the most interesting stories I'm, I'm not trying to get off on a tangent too much but uh i know we're, we're we're bound by time to some degree but um you know jesus tells us out of the 170 women that are mentioned in scripture um he only tells us to remember lot's wife and i think that's that's really important because what he's doing in that in that admonition is when he says remember lot's wife she looked back, right? And that, 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 that phrase, looking back, in the, in the original Hebrew means to look back with longing, right? <clears throat> she looked back with longing for what God said, we're finished with that, right? And so when Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, he's saying, don't look back at what we're finished with. You know, look forward to what's coming, Right? And look forward to what I've got prepared for you. You know, don't look back because what had happened to her? She got stuck, right? She turned to a pillar of salt. And so she stuck forever in a moment that she was supposed to be moving through. She's in a place she was only supposed to be passing through. And she looks back at, at something that he said, hey, I'm done with that. You're done with that. We're going over here. And I think that's a strong metaphoric story to us that we can't look back on those things with longing, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing about my past that I look back on with, with any sort of admiration. Um, I'm thankful for it because it, it obviously has contributed to, to the place in life where I am now. But man, um, that's why I say that's not about me. Yeah. The story is about him and we're finished with that. And yeah, and I'm I'm happy to tell it, share it, you know, because I want people to to maybe understand that um, you're not alone in whatever you're struggling with, and and because I found out that I wasn't alone, I'm I'm surrounded by all these people that I'm, you know, when I came forward that that night at Mountain View, and I'm thinking, you know, this is it, they're going to kick me out for sure now. I had these people coming up to me telling me, you know what, Keith, I don't struggle with uh, cocaine addiction, but but man, I can't let go of pornography. And I had women coming up to me telling me things like, you know, man, if I could have a drink right now, I would. And, you know, and I'm looking at these people like, wait a minute. I thought you guys were these people that had your lives all together. And, and you know what? They were, they were just like me. They were in the same, they were struggling with something. And so I'm, we may not be looking back with longing, you know, and so, but I, and so I tell this story just so that, that people know that, um, that they're not alone and that they have people. Yeah. You know, and I'm glad to be one of those people. Yeah. You know. Well, it, it, it reminds me of Paul in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind. That's right. And reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's I right. press on. I and press on. Like, that's that's what I hear in your story over and over again, just the pressing on. And yeah. maybe in moments when, when you didn't think you were going to press on, uh, God surrounds you with those one another's, with your people. That's it. To push you forward. And then ultimately... Jumping to Hebrews 12, like, you know, letting go of, yeah. of the sin that so easily entangles us. We've got this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. 
and there's maybe a lot of different interpretations of what exactly that means, but your people yeah. helping in, in whatever sense he means there and then fixing your eyes on Jesus. And yeah. that becomes just your dogged determination to see him. And that's so, so powerful. Yeah. Um, there was one, one part of your story that, uh, that really resonated with me this time as you shared it. And that was when, I guess it was Mark Bowman, uh, he, he said uh, that God believes in you. Yeah. Like in, in this moment when you're across the table from him and it feels, maybe not even feels, life had fallen apart. Yeah. And what was that like to hear someone say in a moment at, at your absolute rock bottom, say, God believes in you? Well, you can probably see there's a reaction happening. Uh, because at that point in my life, no one had ever told me they believed in me, ever, right? No one had said, hey, man, I believe in you. You can do it. Um, no one had ever said to me. Um, and something I needed to hear as a boy, you know, as a, as a boy, I needed someone to say, I believe in you. You can do this. You know, I'd, I'd only heard things like, you know, you're not worth anything. You're never going to make it. No one's ever going to love you. Um, you know, my, my, even my grandpa, he used to joke, but he would say things like, that boy's got a lot of quit in him, you know, and which it was a funny saying to say that you hear an old Southern man say, but, but it, man, it, it cut me, you know? And so when, when, when Mark told me that God believed in me, I no one had ever said anybody believed in me. And I began to realize then when I came to under, when I came to learn the story of the prodigal <clears throat> and that the son had left and the son had, had just wasted everything and he finds himself, he finds himself in a mess. He lived his way, you know, and he had made a mess and I could really relate to that. Right now, all of a sudden when I'm reading that story, just like I was talking about earlier, I'm the prodigal son, right? I, that's me. There have been other times in my life I've been the older brother too, yeah, right? Yeah. And there have been times where I've been the father. And so it's funny how those, depending on what you're dealing with, those stories weave together. But I'm the, I'm the younger son, and I'm in the mess, and I just want to go home. And uh, the, the, the image I get in my mind with the father always looking off he believed his son would come home right mm. that's what that that image tells me is that he believed his son would come home he believed in his son that he's going to come to himself and he's going to come home and so every day he's looking off believing that no matter how big of a mess he was in he believed and so when he sees his son afar off the scripture says that he runs out to meet him That's why the song, we sang it last night, and you, you discovered yesterday when I sent you my slides that the song, uh, The Goodness of God, is in my sermon. Um, because when I heard, we learned that song at camp this year. And I got to play you a recording later of, of the campers singing that. But um, when it gets to the bridge in that song and it says, Your goodness is running after me, Whew, that's the Father. Yeah. Running 
after his son because he believed in him. You know, that's the goodness of God is that he will, he's not going to force us to love him, but man, he will run out to meet us where we are. And when Mark told me that God believed in me, it was number one, it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard, (laughs) but it sounded so good because I was like, how does God believe in me? Well, I understand now. I think there's an aspect of God where hope holds out for hope and that he believes that we'll come home. You know, he can't force it on us. He's never going to twist our arm behind our back and make him or make us love him back or, or, or come home. And so he believes. He believes that we will. He's made it possible. And that's why I said those fundamental truths. God loves you and God yeah. wants you and he's made it possible. Right. And what happens is that fourth truth of Satan trying to convince us those things aren't true is that it worked every day in our lives. And so it's those little things, man. It was it was simple as Mark telling me that God believed in me. Um, that began this whole process of understanding that God's goodness has been run after me my whole life. Yeah. And it was the beginning of a, of an awakening for me, and I'm still waking up. You know, it's going to take a, probably the rest of my life, but. Um, you can't run away from God. Yeah. Eventually, you just run into Him. Mm. No matter how far you run in one direction, you're going to run into Him. He's too big, <laughs> and His goodness is too good. And um, and yeah, so that made an impact on me. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, well, I know we've we've got kids funneling into the building yeah. now. We can hear them in the hallway. Um, but. I, there's one there's one question that comes to mind having heard all of that uh, what you just shared and um, you know you mentioned how ev- everybody in their life often finds themselves in one of those two camps the the younger brother yeah. who goes off into the far country the prodigal or the older brother mm-hmm. um, and when you think about that w- within the church, what would you say to both, if you had the chance, what would you say to the younger brother and what would you say to the older brother within a church context as as people identify with one or the other right now? Um, what would you say to them? Well, I love what the father says to both of them. To the younger one, he doesn't actually say anything. That's the thing that blows me away about the story. Um the son comes home, he runs out, he meets him. And immediately the son's like, dad, I'm sorry. You know, I, I blew it and I'm sorry. And, and it's like the father doesn't even acknowledge him. Yeah, He's just like, Hey, get the cow, get my ring. We're my son's home. We're throwing a party. He just wants to celebrate. And, um, I think when someone comes home man, you just say, welcome back. Welcome home. I'm so glad you're here. Remember this. And to the older brother, you say the same thing. Remember this. Because you'll be here someday. Right? That's the the the, the thing about the prodigal son is 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 that we all end up there at some point. You know? That's what I'm saying. I've been the older brother too, where where I thought I I was above 
reproach. And guess what happened? You know? Yeah. I fall. And the older brother doesn't even see the sin that he's committing in in rejecting his brother's return. Yeah. Right? In, in a lot of ways, he's just as far from home. He's just, he's as, just far. as far from the father. That's right. Yeah. You know, and so to both of them, you say, you, you say remember this. Welcome home. Yeah. You yeah. know? Well, well, Keith, like, thank you so much for for coming here this weekend, for sharing this story. Um, but it's just amazing to hear what God has done in your life and and what he's doing through you. And like you said, we're all that, that work in progress. God's working on all of us. He's That's molding right. and shaping us if we'll just let him. That's right. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I, I'm so thankful that you got to share that uh, today. And uh, I love the impact that you've had on the kids. It's been an awesome weekend, and uh, really glad that Thank you're here. Thank you so much, man. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. You know, that was uh, one of the quotes that I keep on my desk, and I don't know who said it. It's anonymous, to my knowledge. But it says, be who you needed when you were young. Mm. And we just talked about when I was young, and I clearly needed somebody, yeah. right? And so that's my goal. And, and the thing is, is that, that I want people to understand who might be listening to this. You don't have to come from a godless family and, and, and neck deep in sin to need somebody. Uh, there are kids here today that need somebody. Maybe they're not dealing with the things that I was. Maybe, maybe it's something else, but it's something. And they need to know that there is somebody. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So. Well, Keith, thanks so much. Love you. Thanks again. Thank you. Love um, you too, brother. Looking forward to uh, the rest of the weekend. Me too.